Hi, I'm Deborah Hamilton. Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Ten years ago, with my iPhone and a script, I recorded the first episode of the Ultimate Pet Resolution Summit, which chatted with experts about conflicts over animals. Our conversations were intimate, honest, and illustrated how disagreements over animals occur and how those disagreements can reshape people's lives and relationships. In November 2019, I started Why Do Pets Matter, a new podcast that continued these informative discussions. I'm so excited to have you here with me, continuing my exploration into a more meaningful conversation about why pets matter to all of us. My guests and I will share ideas, stories, and experiences straight from the heart, unscripted and holistic. From the bravest moments to the most brokenhearted, we will explore how to resolve disagreements over animals differently. One thing I know for sure is I want to have more meaningful conversations that will help all of us unlock that deeply felt human-animal bond that drives the emotions of conflict. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton, and today we are going to have the most wonderful conversation with Dr. Danny Rabwin. She is the founder and CEO of Ready Go Vet, which helps mentor new veterinarians, but also helps mentor old veterinarians as well. We talked about everything from listening to the language you use to periods of quiet. It was just so amazing. At the end, her three takeaways are that veterinary medicine is a joyful, thriving practice to participate in as a veterinarian and as a client, learning to listen on both sides of the pet, the the client and the veterinarian is key. And really mentorship matters. And when you mentor, it can be from a client to a veterinarian, a veterinarian to a client, a veterinarian to another veterinarian, be open to being the mentor about your pet or about the medical issues of the pet as well as being a mentee learning about something new. So let's hear what Danny has to say. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton again, and thank you for coming to Why Do Pets Matter? I am here with my good friend, Danny Rabwin. She's a doctor of veterinary medicine and also the founder and CEO of Ready Vet Go, the first veterinary mentorship program, and you know, That is exactly what I would love to have many of that's ever been created in the veterinary sphere because mentorship is so important to make sure people understand how to start a new profession and then move on. So Danny, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I'm I'm even more excited for you to be here because of course you're using uh, your platform to help veterinarians feel more comfortable, especially in this day and age, uh, when things in veterinary, veterinary medicine um, have shifted so much, you know, post-COVID, pre-COVID, during COVID. Um, so we start off our um, podcast, of course, as always with, Danny. why do pets matter to you? I love this question. And I think my answer to the question might be a little bit different than other veterinarians in that I love people and I love having relationships with people and I love connecting with people. When I was young and knew that I wanted to be a veterinarian, some of it was because I loved animals and I loved my own family pets. But what I really loved was the relationship 
of our family's veterinarian to our family. And I really wanted to be that person for other families. So the answer to the question, why do pets matter to me? I would say that pets matter to me because they are a way for me to connect with people. So I use people's pets and my ability to care for their pets as a veterinarian as a way to build trust and relationships and connection with other people. Well, I love that because when you recognize that the relationship of a person to their pet is so important, having a relationship with them where they feel safe, having you care for their pets is is huge. And as you said, that isn't what the powers that be think when they think about why people get into veterinary medicine, they think they love animals, really not good with people. Uh, so that's why they get into veterinary medicine. But you, it seems you are absolutely the 180 degrees. You got into it because you recognize that human animal bond and then the human human bond that needs to really be strong in order to take care of the animal in your practice and the animal in their lives. Tell us a little bit more about how you do that. Yeah. And I love um, that you bring up both the human human bond as well as the human animal bond. So I just love helping strengthen the human animal bond between pets and their owners and the people who love them. And it's a really unique position to be in to help strengthen that bond as a caretaker. So, you know, I'm trained in medicine for pets, but without a trusting relationship from the person attached to that pet, I don't get to do the things that I'm good at doing and that I was trained to do, which is practice veterinary medicine, the, the art of medicine and surgery and all of those things, which ultimately really are to strengthen that bond between the, the pet, my patient and their owner. And so the first most important thing is really establishing that connection with the human that is making the decisions on behalf of those pets. And that can mean, you know, I do some relief in emergency medicine. So that might be something that I have to do on an extremely urgent basis in a very short period of time. But I also have been in my current practice. Um, in addition to my mentorship program, I'm still a couple of days a week in a clinic where I've been for 10 years. So I have these long tenure relationships with people that are on a different kind of level. And it's a different skill depending on which type of medicine you're practicing, but in every single interaction, there's always going to be a human attached to that pet that we have to connect with on some level to help make the best decisions for that pet and the family. And you know, what I'm hearing you say is that you're working both in regular practice where people are coming in with their pet's wellness, or maybe they have a concern, but you're also meeting people not on their best day. If it's in an emergency situation, none of us are our best when our pets are in an emergency. So you've been able to build a practice and build a new branch of veterinary medicine called Ready Vet Go, which enables you to teach other veterinarians how to read the room, how to read the people, how to really actively listen, how to be empathetic in a time when everyone, including the veterinarian, is a little nervous because if the pet isn't feeling well, this might be the first time you're meeting the emergency vet. So how have you first navigated the difference between 
clinical veterinary medicine where you're meeting them, maybe not in an emergency and actually getting to establish that relationship and the emergency medical situation where you may not have ever seen this person before and yet you need to build a trusting relationship because their pet needs you. Yeah, it was an interesting experience. You know, I, I started off my career after my internship. I worked at a 24-hour clinic and I did some day shifts in the wellness center and built relationships with long-term clients. And then I also did a couple of overnights because I was young and had a lot of energy. And so I did those in addition. And, and you're so- still young and have a lot of energy. I just want to interject <laughs> there. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I, although I don't do the overnights anymore, I really love the the emergency during the day. Um, so I really was very lucky, I think, in that first job in that I was able to build both skills simultaneously at the very beginning of my career. And I had excellent mentors in both capacities. So I had um, practitioners who had been uh, practicing veterinary medicine for many, many years and really took me under their wing, um, both in the day practice um, with those long-term client relationships, as well as with the very bustling kind of overnight, busy emergency setting where we really had just a few short minutes to establish a connection with clients. And it's something that I really loved. I liked the challenge of both. And then one thing that I think really kind of helped me hone in on the fact that I actually was a good communicator was during the pandemic when we were curbside. And so much of that nonverbal communication was removed from us. We really had to use words and language to communicate with clients over the phone. And the feedback that I received, both when I was doing my relief shifts in the emergency setting, as well as in my day practice, was very positive feedback from clients and from pet owners that they appreciated the way that I communicated. And I thought, oh, you know, I've been doing this now for almost 20 years and I love veterinary medicine. And I'm very fortunate in that I have not experienced burnout. I don't feel jaded. I don't have negativity towards this profession. And, oh, I'm starting to realize one of the reasons for that is because I really love connecting with my clients and I can appreciate Many different perspectives, especially like how you were saying, you know, if they come in, it's not their best day when they're stressed and they're bringing their pet in on emergency. And also during the pandemic, when wait times were very long um, and everything was just kind of a mess and to just be able to soften and recognize that when a client is angry or upset, it really doesn't have much to do with me. There's something else going on. And once we can soften and understand where that client is coming from and really meet them where, where they're at. We can have the beginning of a relationship that will help us establish a good outcome for the pet and the family. And so I think the pandemic was really an important time where I I really recognized for myself that being an excellent communicator was a big contributing factor to why I love this profession so much. Well, I have to say you had said so many things in there that really hit home for me because when you are meeting someone, especially during the pandemic, who waited a long time to say to them, we're doing the best we can, often can, and and you don't mean it, can ignite someone saying, well, not good enough for me. You're not doing the best for me. And I, I have yeah. to say that I taught a class 
uh, a few weeks ago and I took the AVMA's discussion on social media and it's five sentences and I took it down to two and I said to the audience, I said, what do you think they go? Well, why did you take that out? And I said, well, it talks about how professional your practice is and how you practice good medicine. And you're speaking to someone who is really angry on social media. You will accelerate the issues if you start to talk about yourself. And so what I'm hearing you do is you just mm -hmm. understand it's not about you. Mm -hmm. It's about what happened to them that day or even just sitting outside. I remember during COVID when I was sitting outside and I'm mind is escalating. And I said, wow, if I'm doing this like you, if I'm doing this and I know what I'm doing, uh, imagine yes. who don't have the ability to understand why they're getting so agitated and so angry and what they can do to diffuse it. I love that, that you talk about the fact that not only were you conscious of what you were communicating, you were getting feedback that sort of fed you in that what you were doing was really resonating with your clients. Yes. And that was something that, you know, I think it took me this long in my career to really be able to internalize that, that they, they, they meant that when they said that what I was saying was resonating with them and that I was able to connect with them. And, and then I was really able to look back and see that that was such an important feature of my practice. And it's something that I was then able to bring to this whole new generation of new veterinarians. That's really what launched my mentorship program and what launched Ready Vet Go. It stemmed from this ability to communicate well and it, it grew out of my working with a new veterinarian during the pandemic, and she was starting off her career, and all of her appointments were curbside, and um, she was at the veterinary practice where I was working, and she was a brand new grad, and her desk was right next to mine, so I got to hear her on the phone and give her feedback, and she got to hear me and sort of emulate what I was saying, but do it in a way that was authentic to her and come up with her own language, and, and through this, she had you know friends who were out in practice who classmates of hers who had graduated and were out in practice and not really receiving the same type of mentorship support that she was. And it was 2020, everyone was getting used to being on Zoom. And so we started this impromptu Zoom group with myself as a facilitator for a bunch of new veterinarians. And it was really incredible. And what I realized was that these new grads are smart and they're extremely well-educated and they know the medicine. And if they don't know the medicine, they know where to look it up or they know who to ask. What their real struggles were was communicating that medicine and all of that knowledge and translating it into a way that their clients could understand. I also had a light bulb moment when I realized that so much of what new veterinarians need as for support as they enter this new profession does not need to be taught on the ground in the clinic by a veterinarian who's right there, because a lot of it is just sort of navigating the nuances and complexities of the things that are non-medical. And that was a real light bulb moment for me and was able to, it was, it was a way for me to share my love for this profession and my ability to communicate well and teach that to a whole host of new, new grads. And so that's how I started Ready Vet Go, this remote mentorship program for new grads. I love that because it isn't about the medicine, it's about the relationship. It is taught in vet schools, but not, I think, in a way that you personally experienced it in your own practice and the way you communicated, you had this desire to know the people. It's different than if you need to know the people, you know, you need to know about the people so you can tell the people what it is they need to know about their pet. 
you wanted to know about the people. So you <laughs> better serve them with respect to their pets. And it it may sound like a very subtle nuance. However, in the world that I work in, where people are in conflict over animals, it is a huge nuance that makes a big difference because what I hear you saying is you're you're teaching these new veterinarians a new kind of medicine in that they are learning how to listen for understanding. They are learning how to get it right over being right so that the client is their ally and not someone who is going to thwart their efforts because they're not going to be able to pill a cat or they're not going to be <laughs> able to, you know, keep a dog quiet after accruciate surgery or something <laughs> like this. You know, it's that ability to really listen um, for understanding and having conversations with your your colleagues as well as um, and the and the front desk staff as well as the um, clients that help them feel as if they're appreciated and understood as well and not taking things so personally. I think probably one of the things you're really good at is letting things roll off your back. That is definitely true. That's true for me just in general in my life and also in the practice of veterinary medicine. You know, as when I work with new veterinarians, one of the things that I really try and impress upon them is letting go of attachment to outcomes. You know, it's not up to us to have an ideal outcome for a pet without understanding the role of that pet in the family and without understanding where this family is coming from and where this pet owner is coming from and taking into account what they would like to see as the best outcome. And a lot of the time that will differ from what we might choose for our own pets. And that doesn't mean that it is a bad choice or a wrong choice. And letting go of that attachment to an outcome can be really helpful. And I do that just kind of by nature. Like you said, I just kind of, I, I do tend to let many things roll off my back, but it is a learned skill also. And I've, I've seen it in action, which is great. And I just, you know, I really like hearing what you're saying about, you know, sort of using that to diffuse conflict. You know, I think your services would be needed less potentially if we were better at that. And like you said, I mean, it is now taught in the vet schools. I teach it a little bit differently because of my own lived experience over the last 20 years. But what I'm hearing from these new grads is that the veterinary schools are really trying and they are doing a better job than they did 20 years ago when I was a veterinary student. One of the things that I noticed, however, and you know, I'd be curious to see if this is what you hear on the mediation side as well. But when we talk about providing a spectrum of care and being able to offer many different outcomes, I hear it spoken about a lot in terms of finances as though, well, there's this gold standard and that's what you should do. And if your clients don't choose that, it's because of money. So let's, let's come up with something that's less expensive. And my argument is that actually many, many times it is about much more than finances. Finances are a part of it, of course, but there is so much more complexity and nuance into why people will choose what they will choose on behalf of their pets that is far beyond or completely separate from finances. And so that's where I'm really trying to get the message out there. Yeah, and really give the veterinarians the skills to take a breath and wait for it. 
<laughs> yes. You know, it, it, silence is really hard to sit through when you say something and then just wait for them to contemplate. And then you start saying, well, what about this? And what about this? And, and I often tell the veterinarians in practices that I go to as well, just wait for it. Just <laughs> say to them, listen, there are several things we can do here. And tell me a little bit more about what you see for the future of Fluffy or of Spot. You know, how does, how does all of this work? Because you're right, there are so many nuances. And I talk, of course, as well as to veterinarians, I talk to those pet owners, those pesky <laughs> pet owners on, on how to talk to their veterinarians. Because mm. they really have to be transparent and set expectations for themselves and for their veterinarians because they can't say, oh yes, you know, do the cruciate and I'll keep him in his crate forever. And, and you have to know that, is this a person who, you know, is going to keep the dog in a crate for as long as it needs to be kept in a crate. So you don't have to do it again. Or is it someone that's going to really need either an alternative or assistance or check-ins or whatever. And I give the clients the strength to really ask for help because a lot of them hate to let you know that they might not be able to do A, B, or C because then they might project on themselves they're a bad mother or father to their pet. And you as a veterinarian, I hate when they use gold standard because it really formulates in my mind as a pet owner, well, I have to give my dog the gold standard. No, you have yes. to give your dog and, and you're doing this. I'm going to ask you more about how you, you language that. You are giving your dog what is best for your dog. So for, for me with my dogs, I tend to think it's about them and not about me. So I can afford to do A, B, C, and D. And, you know, I had a dog with osteosarcoma and I talk about her often in some of, of the podcasts and I decided to let her transition and not cut her leg off because in my mind, uh, yes, I would have gotten another year and she was my heart dog of all the dogs I've had. There've been three or four that are a heart dog, maybe 20, but anyway, we won't go <laughs> But letting her go is the hardest thing I've ever had to do, but I, I couldn't justify in my mind how I would explain to her how she was waking up with three legs. And since I couldn't do that, to me, it wasn't that I didn't want to spend the money or, you know, spend the time or it wasn't, a, wasn't about me. I would have bent over backwards. However, I just didn't think it was fair for her. And that's, I think, what you're talking about when the veterinarians are giving options to clients, putting them out there without, it's a tonal thing, it's a ranking thing, it's, it's a whole bunch of things so that a client can actually make that choice like I did. And I'll never forget what the vet said who was going to do the surgery. He said, you know, you're absolutely right. The daisy you would have brought out after surgery would not have been the daisy you brought in. Mm. You are doing what is what you wanted to do for that daisy. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was the most impactful comment I'd ever heard. And I wasn't yet into all of this as deeply, you know, conversation and communication and language to use. But that has really stuck with me as the best thing to say as I was picking the dog up, you know, 10 minutes before surgery was supposed to start um, mm. and take her home. So for you, you're talking that language as well to clients and tell me, how do you navigate that? spectrum of care because, you know, beside the fact that, you know, the ability for people to get care is, is really difficult. The, you know, putting themselves into financial difficulties should be a consideration 
as well. You know, a really, you know, sometimes people feel you have to do that. And, and I don't know that a veterinarian has any ability to say, you know, you don't have to do that. However, I guess it's how they present it. Tell me a little bit about mm-hmm. more about how you mentor, I'm sure, older vets as well as younger vets mm-hmm. on having that uh, spectrum of care conversation. Yeah, it is definitely something that's evolved over time. And I have certainly taken little pieces of some of the language that I use from, from my mentors. And you know that language that your veterinarian used with you which just helped you so much be able to be confident and comfortable with the decision that you were making is so important. And one of the things that I say many times is something that I heard from a mentor I had during my internship, which is, I want you to know that I really support that decision. Or if you were to choose this, I would very much support you in that decision. And that's some language that I sort of adopted and used. I ask a lot of questions to help come up with the best outcome. So I speak a lot about a concept called shared decision-making, and it's something that they use a lot on the human side um, that physicians will use to communicate with their patients. Um, And so this is something that I've spoke to um, veterinary schools and students about, and that I speak to my mentees about is shared decision-making, whereby, you know, we, we share in the decision to make the best outcome for the patient and their family. And a lot of it involves asking questions. That's a way that I can really help navigate the spectrum of care for each individual case. And some of those questions will be things like, tell me about, you know, Fluffy's role in your family. What does her usual day look like? What are your goals for her? What outcomes would you like to see? I will often at the end of a meeting or a visit with a a client, if I don't get the feeling that there's a lot of buy-in for the proposal that I have offered or the different um, pathways that we could go, and I sense that they're really not on board with any of it, I'll say, did you have a different option that you wished I would propose? Because I would love to hear that. And just putting it out into the room, I want to hear where you are coming from is a really great way to connect with people and make sure that nothing is missed. Because I think like what you were alluding to before, sometimes people will say yes to things that they really know they either can't do or they don't want to do. Sure, I'll create or confine my dog after the TPLO when they know very well that that's probably not an option, but they're worried about disappointing us. That disappointing us should not even be a concern. We want to create a safe space where that client can say, you know what, I really don't think that's going to work. And so I'll tell them, I'll say, let me know, please, what limitations you, you have. You know, if I have a patient that's diagnosed with diabetes, well, I need to know, like, do you have the ability physically to administer insulin? I don't know about your physical capabilities. I don't know about what's going on in the home or after you leave my office. Um, So share with me, are there things that I should know that will help me guide you towards the best decision? And a I lot love of questions. To ask those open-ended questions, but they're open-ended with a direction. So it's not like, mm-hmm. do you have anything else you want to say? Which is yes. a lovely question to ask. However, yes. they are they are hit with a fire hose, especially if their dog has diabetes or needs surgery. They're hit with a fire hose. Yes. So if you ask them, I love that you said, tell me if there's another scenario you thought of that would assist us in working through this TPLO or this diabetes or this thyroid or whatever it is uh, that is going to require repeated treatments that you, you know, that I want to know how comfortable you feel doing this. And is there uh, any hesitation on your part? Because you know what? Hesitation is normal. 
So, mm. so you're, you're asking open-ended questions, which in, in my neck of the woods is perfect because you want them to finish those questions. And then I'm sure you do what you probably help your mentors to do as well. Wait for an answer. Yes. <laughs> it's really interesting, Deborah. I, when I first started working with mentees and I hold them in a survey at the end of my first cohort that I did. And I said, what, what would you recommend I do to help make this a more robust and better program for other new grads who I'm going to be working with? And many said, we want to see you in action in exam rooms. You teach us all these things. You talk about it. We want to actually see you do it. And so I took that to heart and I got permission from dozens of clients in advance of them coming in to see me. These Some of them I knew, some of them were brand new. Um, and I would just set up my phone and click record. And I went into it doing, thinking, okay, I'm doing this for the benefit of these new veterinarians. And actually it was a real benefit for me to be able to see myself in action. And that waiting piece, I didn't realize how much I do that. I'm pretty good at that. Asking the question, sitting down, you know, because usually I'm sitting, I like to be on the same level. I, you know, don't like the, the dynamic of me standing and somebody sitting. So if somebody's sitting, I sit and I sit and I pose an open-ended question and I just wait. And seeing myself do that really helped me then know that that's something that I should be teaching. And so me watching it was very eye-opening for me. And then also having other veterinarians be able to watch that in action, I think is really helpful. In, in my trainings that I do for veterinarians and their staff, I often, I'm a visual learner, I'm an auditory learner, and I'm a scribe learner because I need all three to get me through anything. So I write things down. I've been scribbling notes all during this so that I can remember <laughs> three things I want to say at the end. Um, I am an auditory learner because I listen and reflect back what I'm hearing to make sure I got it right. And I stop and, and really let people tell me what they're thinking. So you do the same thing, but the visual part is, and I make fun of this because it is fun. Staples has a ton of duct tape that is not gray. It has penguins on it. It has <laughs> on it. It has unicorns on it. And I often suggest for veterinarians to buy a roll of duct tape and just put it in the exam room to remind them to wait for an answer because you might forget. And yet if you see the roll of happy duct tape, the pig, the penguin, the unicorn on the counter, it may remind you when you walk in, I need to wait for the answer. I need to slap a piece over my mouth figuratively or actually, I did this in the beginning of my mediation practice because we always want to help somebody understand or try to tell them what it is we're hearing them say. And often, like you said, it's so much better to just sit there and let them tell us what they're thinking. It is. And I think that's a hard thing for many clinicians to do, but especially new grads, because I think they often feel like they have to convey to pet owners how much they really know. And obviously they mean well, um, but they take up a lot of the time by doing a lot of the talking and a lot less of the listening. And I don't know if you encounter this when you're, you know, counseling people on how to, 
you know, duct tape themselves <laughs> um, and, and just sit back and listen. But one thing that I heard a lot is, well, doesn't that take a long time? The way you're talking about client communication sounds like it's very time consuming. Well, I'll tell you, I am in and out of exam rooms very quickly. My clients feel heard and seen and understood. And one of the interesting things that I found when I was researching about shared decision-making on the human side is I'm sure this is no surprise to you, but when physicians use shared decision-making, those physicians' malpractice claims are significantly lower than their colleagues who do not um, participate in shared decision-making. And when those clinician interactions were recorded, it was found that they spend on average three minutes longer with their patients than their non-shared decision-making colleagues. And three minutes is not that long to feel confident that you're having a good outcome for the family and also to know that we're not going to need Deborah Hamilton to come in and help us mediate some bad exchange um, because we really were able to connect and understand each other. That is my mission in life. And it, <laughs> it just goes back to what I said before is, do you want to get it right? Or do you want to be right? And yes. we feel that we need to make sure you know what's the right thing to do. And we really, as you said, in the shared decision-making, nobody knows what the right thing to do is until you have had this conversation and you've really listened to, you want to listen to the veterinarian as a client. What are they offering? What can I do? What, what is the next best step? And also the veterinarian listening to what the client says. And I'd love to ask you what you do because they ask me this all the time when there's a conflict, uh, what would you do? So what do you do when they say, well, if it was your pet, Dr. Radwin, what would you do? And how do you answer that? I generally answer them honestly. I really let them know what I would do while explaining how our situations differ. And I had this happen yesterday. And I was thinking about this when you were sharing with me about your heart dog and the osteosarcoma. I mean, deciding about amputation is a very emotional decision. And I had a um, hind limb amputation scheduled for me a few days ago. This was in a 17 year old cat who had a vaccine associated sarcoma on his rear leg. Those are not as common as we, we used to see them, but they still happen. And that's a procedure that I do. And this was referred to me for that. And we had it scheduled and she called me the day before and we had a big conversation. She was having a really hard time with her decision. And she said, what would you do if this was your pet? And I said, well, honestly, I, I, I would do it. You know, I'm a veterinarian. This is a surgery that I'm comfortable with. I feel like for my cats, the outcome would be good. And this is something that I feel comfortable with, but I am not in your shoes. And I completely understand that you are bringing a whole host of other experiences and values into this decision. And you have had this pet for the past 17 years. And what I want you to know is that the decision that you make is going to be the right one for you and your pet. And that has nothing to do with the decision that I would make for mine. And there is zero judgment. And the other thing I say is I am like desperately sorry that the decision you have to make is two relatively extreme decisions. Either you're going to amputate your 17-year-old cat's leg or you're going to choose euthanasia. There's not a good in-between. And I always name that when we're faced with a big decision. Either we decide to go in and do this emergency splenectomy or we euthanize. Both of those are really hard decisions. So I name it, I honor it and acknowledge it and let them know that I feel very confident that the decision that they make is going to be within the best interest of themselves and their pet. 
while also answering the question that they ask. And I don't know if that's the right way to go. I'd be curious to hear a mediator's perspective on that, but I tend to be honest in answer to your question of what do I say when, when they ask me, what would you do if this was your pet? I, I love that you tell them what you would do if it was your pet and the additional information that says, but this isn't my pet, this is your pet. Yes. Because you are answering and I don't have a problem with anybody ever saying, speaking the truth and being open and educational. The part that you added that is so important for everyone who's listening to this podcast is, but this is not my pet. This is your pet. And I loved when you said you spent 17 years with this pet. You know what this pet's life is to you. You know what you want for your pet. And whatever decision you make is going to be the right decision for this pet in your life and for your family, which is what we should say, because you're right. I will do something different than you will do. And that was the right decision for your pet. And that was the right decision for my pet. And I think that's as a mentor, being able to impart that to your mentees and Mm -hmm. to your your colleagues who probably might need a little mentorship as well. It is key because there is no right answer. There is only the answer that is going to meet your needs today. And, you know, I'm sure you've had a number of people who said, oh, I wish I'd done something differently with Fluffy. And I'm sure you say, and yet Fluffy lived a great life. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, yes. can't wake them up, can't put the leg back on. Um, okay. So, you know, just being able to, you know, acknowledge their feelings uh, and give them the opportunity to know they did what was best for Fluffy in that moment. And, you know, 2020 hindsight for all of us is so perfect. That's what I tell my, <laughs> my, my clients who are in conflict. Uh, if you hadn't taken that information in the way you did, the conflict wouldn't have escalated the way it did. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> hello. However, right. Uh, There's so much I would love to continue to talk about. I'm sitting here thinking about three of the most important things that I heard. I'd love to get the three things that you think people should take away from this podcast to help them communicate better uh, as veterinarians and even as clients, if you've had great conversations with clients. So the three things that I would want people to take away from this conversation, one would be for veterinarians out there and people joining this profession, that this is the best profession in the world. And there is a lot of talk about the hardships of veterinary medicine right now, and a lot of emphasis on burnout. And those things do exist. That being said, there are tools that we can learn and that people can teach. You're teaching and I'm teaching to help veterinarians new and experienced to do more than just not burn out but to really thrive and find joy in the profession of veterinary medicine, because it is, in my opinion, the greatest profession. Um, That would be number one. Number two is to listen. I think that's something that um, has come up as a theme throughout this conversation with us today. And for pet owners and for veterinarians to really sit back and listen Genuinely, you know, actively listening and taking to heart what people are sharing with you. You can learn a lot. You can really connect with people that way. And you can take that information that you're learning to help guide uh, pet owners towards a, a good outcome. And I would say, finally, mentorship matters. Mentorship is important. And we can all be mentors in our life. 
And for experienced veterinarians out there who are listening and non-veterinarians, but who are in the veterinary profession or working with, with new grads, it is a real joy to be able to learn from mentees. And I really thrive off of their excitement at finally joining this profession they worked so hard to join. And it is a definitely a two-way street uh, being a mentor. That mentor-mentee relationship is really satisfying. And I think that goes for all kinds of um, professions. Well, I can't wait to have you back to talk about that because I'm a huge proponent of mentor-mentee. And if you are the mentor, you have to be willing and understand that you're a mentee as well. Yes. Because there is, there is so much you're going to impart to someone. However, being able to gain something from your mentee is huge as well. So I love that you put that in. So that would be one of my um, three. I love that you said, be authentic. So when you're talking to someone, be your authentic self. Mm. And the final one that I'd love to add to this wonderful three parts, so it's six, is (laughs) the shared decision-making. And Mm. remember, it is shared. Remember, you do have to listen. So that takes in one of yours in order to have a shared decision-making process. And you have to reflect back what you hear mm-hmm. so that they know you're listening. And so you know they're listening. So it's two-way street. Yes. Oh my God. Danny, this has been wonderful. Yes. Tell us where we can catch up with you. I'd love for you to put your website, um, say your website, we'll put it up in the show notes. Everyone will get all the links when uh, the podcast is posted, but while they're here listening, how can they get in touch with you if they'd like you to come in and teach them how to be mentees and mentors? Yes. I would be happy to come teach people and you can find me at readyvetgo.co. So just .co. I'm fairly active on Instagram, which is readyvetgo underscore. I have a lot of information for new grads and veterinary students. And I'm on LinkedIn at Danny Radwin. Oh, wonderful. Danny, we'll have you back. And until next time, make sure you kiss all of your pets for me because pets really do matter. Yes, they do. And I will. Thank you for being here. I hope you had a good time. I had such a good time. Thank you so much. Yay. That's what we want here. We don't want anybody nervous. We want them to want to come back. (laughs) I do. I want to. (laughs) Next time. The Why Do Pets Matter podcast drops every Thursday and can be found on whichever platform you find your podcast. Subscribe now, invite your friends, and I cannot wait to have you join me in these conversations.